Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 55-0 of the Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Teslaw. I'm an active duty patrol sergeant in Southern California. The Squad Room is about developing, optimizing, and maintaining the health and wellness of law enforcement officers all around the world. If this is your first time listening, thanks for joining us. Uh, the show is about all aspects of health. Today's episode is, uh, I guess, it really about a, it's a, it's an, a mental and emotional health story. It's not a positive story uh, by any means, but it is a fascinating one. Uh, my guest is one of the most corrupt, or I'll say was, one of the most corrupt cops I've ever heard of. And his story today is, is his goal, or it's his mission now to teach others how to avoid the same pitfalls that he fell in. Uh, and it's quite a story. And uh, as I tell it when we're talking, he, he emailed me his story, and I didn't believe it. I thought, there's no way that one person dealt with all this. This is... This just this just can't be true. I mean, the story goes from being recruited uh, out of his probationary year at LAPD into a juvenile narcotics unit, and then it, and it snowballs from there. And um, anyone who is in West Coast law enforcement, but in, in law enforcement in general, has probably heard of the Rampart scandal. And it's one of the most famous police scandals out there. And it's almost it's I, I think I need to kind of go through the what the Rampart scandal was so you understand his role in this and, and in, in the culture of the LAPD uh, at the time, specifically the Rampart division. Rampart is an area of Los Angeles and it's a it's a patrol station within LAPD. And um, my guest, Ruben Palomares, was one of uh, the, the the most prolific uh, of the dirty cops, and he admits and talks about it both, both in his testimony in federal court and here on the show. Um, I struggled with having him on the show, and if I wanted to have him on the show, this is typically a very positive. It's meant to be a very positive podcast, very informative, very evidence based, uh, and this is not a positive story. Like I say, first of all, and it's also I th- was concerned giving voice to. Uh, someone who will rightfully uh, piss a lot of you off, and me included, frankly. Uh, it, I, we get so frustrated when we read about cops who cross the line and how much more difficult it makes our job and how much more difficult it makes our authenticity and our legitimacy in the public. And he, at one point, asks, you know, who, who was I really hurting? Uh, there aren't any victims here. Uh, but he now understands that one of his biggest victims was law enforcement in general, that our, our, our legitimacy is challenged when these things happen. And when they happen on the scale that they did uh, in Ruben's case, it is just devastating. Uh, dozens, uh, over 100, 106 criminal convictions were overturned as part of this scandal. Um, murderers, rapists, drug dealers, those kinds of people walked free because they could not uh, confirm the evidence that was put against them and they were they were arrested by dirty cops. So ran, the Rampart scandal came out of the crash unit, which is the anti-gang unit in the Los Angeles Police Department in the early 90, late 90s. And the, eventually 70 police officers got wrapped up in this whole mess. Um, they implicated 70 officers 
58 of those went before the administrative board. Only 24 were actually found to have committed any wrongdoing. 12 were given suspensions. Seven were forced into retirement or resigned. And five were terminated. Ruben is one of those who was terminated. Not only that, um, he spent 18, well, was convicted and sent to prison for 16 years. And he faced a life sentence had he decided not to plead not guilty. Or excuse me, if he decided to, if he had decided to plead not guilty, he would have faced a life sentence. So the Rampart scandal, it goes back to 1997 uh, in, in, a, in a seemingly unrelated event in which an undercover white officer uh, is confronted by an undercover crash officer, uh, uh, Kevin Gaines. So the white undercover officer's name is Frank Laga. And he gets into a road rage dispute with Officer Kevin Gaines. Neither of them know each other or cops. And Liga's testimony is that Gaines, the black crash officer, uh, pulled up next to him, was angry, displaying gang signs, and then pulled a gun on him. Uh, Liga called for backup, and before the backup could get there, Gaines pulls his gun, Liga shoots him in self-defense, and kills him. And uh, Liga's shooting is deemed reasonable because uh, it was self-defense. But they find out that the crash officer that he shot, this Kevin Gaines, was working uh, security on his off time for Suge Knight and Death Row Records, and that he was closely affiliated with the Blood Street Gang, uh, and that Death Row in general was hiring lots of off-duty LAPD cops to serve as security guards. So uh, fast forward just a couple of weeks, or no, sorry, a couple of months, November of 1997, the branch of the Bank of America in Los Angeles gets held up, and um, it is committed by, eventually figure out that it's committed by an LAPD officer, David Mack. David Mack stole $722,000 in that armed robbery of the Bank of America, and he, gets, he got sentenced to 14 years and three months in federal prison. Um, shortly after that, Officer Brian Hewitt of the Rampart Crash uh, Division, a partner of Kevin Gaines, the road rage uh, decedent, uh, is, uh, brings a 18th Street gang member into the Rampart station and beats him senseless inside the station. Uh, he, uh, there's an investigation. He's eventually fired, and he is sent to federal prison uh, for a variety of crimes, um, including distribution of drugs and conspiracy to com- commit murder. So out of all of these things, they form a task force to investigate some of the corruption that's going on at Rampart. You have a couple of common themes here. David Mack, uh, Kevin Gaines, and uh, Brian Hewitt are all engaged in this activity. When they pick up that uh, Rampart crash officer, Rafael Perez, who is also working off-duty for Death Row Records, has been stealing cocaine and robbing banks uh, in his off time, just uh, keep him, keeping himself busy on his days off, I guess. So they bring in Perez. He's arrested uh, after nine years on the job. He's arrested in August of 1988 for the theft of six pounds of cocaine from the Rampart property room. He was stealing cocaine from the property room, uh, replacing it with Bisquick, and then he was selling off the proceeds on the street. So when he was uh, arrested, he had lots of dirt on lots of different people, including my guest today, Ruben Palomares, and he tipped off investigators that... Uh, Ruben was also dirty and Ruben's story, we'll tell it on the, in the interview. So I'm not going to tell it here. 
Um, but he was part of this. And, and in some ways, um, short of murder was probably the biggest, um, he, the, what he did and, 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 and how much he gained, how much he netted out of this was probably bigger than anybody else. And the organization that it took for him to do what he did was bigger. Some of these guys were off on their own, doing their own thing. And he talks about that. He knew other cops are dirty, but he actually ends up, uh, recruiting a crew to take to that, that goes with him. And of course it all ends poorly. Ruben, um, explains that a lot of this was the result of what he now believes to be post-traumatic stress. And uh, you'll hear his story as to why he thinks that and the incident that, that happened. And he's got a valid point. I think he's he's got a legitimate issue that PTSD could be, or very likely is a, a major role in his life. Um, but I, I still have a hard time with the leap from anger and resentment to to robbing drug dealers and po- and faking search warrants and doing all the thing and buying 10 keys of coke uh from an undercover informant i i struggle with justification for that but at the same time i try to remember i didn't grow up like ruben i didn't grow up in boyle heights in one of the worst areas of la i didn't grow up surrounded by abusive male role models and i didn't grow up in an area where my only two options were the gangs or law enforcement. So I really try, and I hope I succeeded in giving Ruben the benefit of the doubt, because it's often hard to talk with someone who's done something so egregious. And uh, as he st- as he talks at the end, um, give forgiveness. Even though I've never met him until today, and he's never wronged me personally, there's a fair argument that he's wronged the profession irreparably. Uh, but he is now seeking um, to uh, forg- he's seeking forgiveness and he's seeking to change and he's seeking to teach others what those red flags are and those warning signs about that slippery slope from um, idealistic police officer to, as Kevin Gilmartin puts him, lacks of omission to lacks of commission. So uh, hopefully you can enjoy this interview with Ruben. It's the audio is unfortunately not great. His our Skype connection was really stilted um, and kind of muddy at times, so it may be hard to hear him. But work through it, uh, and you'll get some. You'll get a very interesting story out of it at the very least, and I think you'll get some uh, lessons out of it as well, either good or bad. And uh, let me know what you think. Would love to hear what you think of Ruben and his plight. And his challenges, uh, shoot me an email, Garrett at the squadroom.net, or just uh, hit me on Instagram or Twitter at the squadroom and let me know what you think of, uh, of this episode. So here's Ruben. Ruben Palomares, formerly LAPD, now on parole. Ruben Palomares, thanks for being on the show, man. Uh, you reached out to me to, in an email, and uh, I, 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 people are going to figure out in, a, in not too long why it took a lot of guts for you to. To, to send that email, but thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for responding to the email and for uh, getting a hold of me and for having me on your show. Um, I appreciate it too. Yeah. So, um, you, you sent me a story. You sent me, you know, I, I put out this request to my ma- mailing list asking for, for stories of people who wanted to share their experience on law enforcement. And the, the story you sent back, um, I, 
like three sentences in, was already laughing because I thought somebody was sending me a script from like 21 Jump Street uh, or, or had just made everything up, right? And and that this was just, there was just no way that this was this was true. And it took one Google search for me to confirm your entire story. And uh, it's it's a it's a huge story. It's a it's fascinating to me. So I, I want to tell it chronologically for people so that we we get the whole breadth of it. So you are formerly LAPD. Uh, tell me about what it was like for you growing up, and where where did you grow up? Uh, part of my upbringing was in Huntington Park, South Central, and uh, Boyle Heights, East LA area. Those are the areas where I grew up in and went to high school in those areas too. Okay, and so for people who aren't familiar with LA, I mean South Central is kind of famous, but describe Boyle Heights in East LA for people. Boyle Heights is a predominantly uh, Chicano, Hispanic, Mexicans uh, from different parts of Mexico, but you have the second generation Chicanos that are being raised by the parents who came from Mexico, and a lot of them are very lured into the gang lifestyle in that area. So it's pretty gang infested in that area. It's a uh, Inner city, you have the projects, but then you have a lot of the areas, the surrounding areas. They're low-income home and homes, and some of them are decent, but you have a lot of uh, drugs and gang activity in that area. So to maybe reinforce that for people too, um, you know, shows like Southland uh, take place. Lots of that, the the gang scenes, and those, those take place in places like Boyle Heights and East LA. Um, right. Lots of movies are made over those areas. Um, and then, um, in fact, one inspired by some of the events that you were in, which, which we'll get to later. So you were you grew up in a hard neighborhood, surrounded by yes. gangs. And one of the things you mentioned in your email to me was was a lack of a father figure growing up. What was your what was the male role model situation like in your life? My upbringing was uh, I, I was surrounded by a lot of different uncles and friends, but most of them were machismo. They were real into the pride, the Mexican uh, pride, and the tough guy uh, much uh, attitude. Uh, some of them were involved in gangs. Some of them were involved in drugs. My 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 dad that raised me was involved in just drinking. He was an alcoholic and uh, pretty verbally and physically abusive. My surrounding was uh, was tough because I had to adapt myself to that environment to to survive. So I learned how to defend myself. I learned how to fight. I learned how to uh, basically deal with the beat up beat up the bullies <laughs> beat up the bullies in the neighborhood. <laughs> Well, and you took that to a level where you actually turned that into a potential career, right? I mean, you weren't you a you're a Golden Gloves boxer, is that right? Yes, I fought the Golden Gloves in uh, 1985, I believe, in '86, uh, twice in two years, and then I fought the Diamond Belt tournament. I won those. Uh, I, I fought a lot of good tournaments. I, I went all over the world, Australia, Canada. I fought the World Games. I got medals in those. I even fought the police Olympics for LAPD and won the gold medal for that in, I think it was 96. And so to emphasize to people, I mean, this was a real talent of yours, and this was something that you had set your sights on making the Olympic team in, what was it, 88 and then in 92? In 92, yes. And uh, sparring with the likes of Oscar De La Hoya, right? Yeah, De La Hoya, Ralph Arella, I, I fought him. I, I had a lot of good, uh, good competition that sharpened me up, too. And my coaches were real good coaches, too. They gave me a lot of their experience, so it was it was good and fun for me. I enjoyed it a lot. It, it helped me also direct focus my energy, my anger, my frustrations on in the ring, uh, my opponents, the punching bag, the mitts. It helped me uh, release it all in there. So it was, it was good for me. And it's 
kind of a, a positive uh, uh, end result. Yeah, po- it's a lot of self discipline to do something like yeah. that level, uh, especially at such up. a young age. Uh, right. So, what then? You know, growing up in that neighborhood, it seems like it's maybe it's cliche, and maybe you can correct me uh, if I'm wrong. But you you have two options uh, in those situations, and you can you can join the dark side and, and join the gangs or you can uh, try and get out. And you, you, you chose to get out uh, and, and actually just go the opposite way. And you joined the LAPD. Right. What was the motivation for becoming a cop when you grew up in such an environment like that? I, I saw a lot of uh, violence around me. Uncles, cousins get killed in, in, because of the drugs or gangs and friends. A lot of them would get killed left and right. And, and to me, I knew that wasn't something I wanted. I couldn't stand that stuff. I couldn't stand what it, what it stood for, the belief system behind it. So in my mind, um, being that I was boxing, one of my trainers was Al Stanky. He was a LAPD, but he was also a good coach. He took uh, Paul Gonzalez to the 1984 Olympics. He won the gold medal, and he was from East L.A. Well, Al Stanky was actually uh, George Lopez. Al Stanky, they were all ex, uh, you know, police officers. And they, I liked the way that they actually showed that they cared about us. They, Showed support. They showed uh, that they were actually into helping us get out of that that kind of environment and also succeed. And they were good role models to me. So in my mind, me being from that area, I, I thought to myself, I'd be a good uh, role model and actually a mentor for <clears throat> for the young kids out here. <clears throat> excuse me, as a police officer because they're gonna understand that I can relate to them. And why not try to make a difference? Right? Why not help the youngsters out here? And uh. That was one of the big motivators. So you saw the LAPD as, as positive role models in your life, and you had direct interaction with them. Uh, yes. What when you when you started the academy? What was your what was your goal? I knew that I wanted to work patrol, but really my goal was to go to SWAT. That was my goal to go to SWAT. But in the academy, I mean, to me, the academy was fun was challenging, but at the same time, being that I had the background <clears throat> with the martial arts and boxing, I was fit and I was already already disciplined to the point where uh, I've been pushed hard in my training. So to me, that that was actually like, it was fun, but I I, I know I could turn it up a notch more to, to push myself even harder while I was in there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the, the process to get to Metro was quite intense and quite involved, even for... Competition veteran. is tough. Yeah, for veteran officers. So... You go to the LAPD Academy, and almost immediately after graduation, maybe it was in the academy, you can correct me, you get recruited to a, a juvenile narcotics unit. Oh, now, actually, sorry, go ahead. Actually, uh, because of the academy, if you rank pretty high in your class, they let you pick the division you want to work in. And I wanted to go to South Central because I knew the area, I knew the guy. I wanted to just give back to that area and, and – uh, I ended up going to South Central for probably four to five months, I believe. And then the, the undercover narcotics unit, the bike team, called me and offered me the, the job to work the undercover high school program. So you were six, I mean, six months into the job, and now, I mean, <laughs> six months out of the academy, I didn't know my uh, my head from my ass. Um, <laughs> and here you're being offered a chance to work undercover in the narcotics unit in the juvenile narcotics. So tell me what that, what was that invitation like and, and what was your job responsibilities in that unit? 
Well, first off, they, they don't want you to get too broken in as a patrol cop because they don't want you to pick up the bad habits that, or the habits that come with the patrol officers where you can give yourself away by just certain stance or, or communication skills. So they don't want to get you, they don't want to get you when you've already been in patrol too long. So they got me fresh so I could still have normal civilian habits in a sense of, or, or I could be really broken as an undercover cop because now they're going to send you to a high school as an 11th grader. And you're actually 23, 24, 22 years old, and you're going to send you to high school again, and you want to go as an 11th grader. And they want you to still have the slang, they want you to still have the, the kind of the, the street lingo, everything that, that goes with that territory. And uh, they take you to the classroom, they start teaching you about the different types of narcotics, different types of report writing, identif- identifying uh, individuals, how to identify people you buy from, without giving yourself away. Uh, also, you go. You go into little areas where they're selling drugs just to get you to practice getting comfortable with asking, uh, buying drugs in the street. Mm-hmm. And they, they send you out there. You're, you're dressed like a young kid, you know, trying to fit the role. And then once you're ready for that, <clears throat> they, they send you, they assign you a detective who's probably equivalent to the Sergeant Two. He's your, he's your boss. Yes, you, you actually report to. He's gonna, um, give your cases well basically you give him your cases every time you get a buy you take him your paperwork but that's who you report to so you all get signed up to high school you get an id with uh from the dmv with your first name but the last name is different you don't want to give a different first name because you might forget your first name when you're working on the cover and somebody keeps calling you by your fake name and you don't respond that's kind of a, get, a giveaway they might think you know, this guy ain't hearing me or he's you know, that's not his name you know so you want to keep your first name and then they send you to high school. They, nobody knows that you're going to go in there except the principal, but the principal don't know who you are. They know that they're undercover there. And then you go become a student and, and re, 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 relive it or replay it, whatever the case may be. So you had to uh, sit there in like 11th grade English class? Yeah. Suffering through these lectures? Yeah, um, you, you can still play the role as a, as a little rebellious individual, but uh-huh. you can't get kicked out of school. You can get a D or C, but uh, don't get kicked out of school. They want you to stay in the program because they want you to buy dope. Off the student, they want to see if you can link the kids to the suppliers to try to get the bigger fish. But uh, yeah, they want you to play the role a little bit, not too exaggerated, where you're not going to be able to make it in school, and uh, just fit in. So you even had to do like the homework, so the teachers wouldn't know who you were. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I had help. <laughs> that's why I say. That's why I laugh. Like it's like Twenty One Jump Street when you email me. It was like this is it's. Uh, I really didn't even. I I guess I'd never occurred to me that this existed it sounds silly maybe or maybe i just knew it did but i i've never understood the specifics of it but it <laughs> so how it's so, a hard job yeah so i mean and and so now you're you know six months out and, and how long did you how long i mean you started working in in this high school right i mean I, I was working in the dual high school so right off the bat i started fitting in with the individuals and uh i started uh immediately i started selling me weed like take the weed at packages and, and seal it and uh, book it for evidence. And then my, my boss would put it in his, his uh, you know, in a se- separate file with the uh, identification. Cause I would have to ID my, 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 uh, that I bought my supplier without, I not knowing his first or last name right away. I could say a uh, white shirt or this guy, that's how I would ID. And then, you know, we just put down the label until eventually I get the names and for the process of my investigation and my undercover work, I would get the names. But, um, yeah, I'll start buying drugs. 
And one day, <clears throat> this one individual from South Central who was actually being bused to this high school uh, told me that he, he, if I wanted to buy PCP, and I said, yeah, sure. I, I said, I don't use it. I said, but I have friends that use it, and I, I know I can get rid of it really, really, really quick, and I have to play that role. So he goes, well, tomorrow I'll bring you a container. But I said, how much you want to sell it for? And he goes, eighty dollars. I go, you know what? Just make sure you call me, uh, page me, because uh, back then we had the pages. This was in nineteen ninety four, <clears throat> and I said, uh, just go ahead and make sure you page me ahead of time, so I can take the money and make sure you're gonna have it. So when we get to school, I just get it from you right away. So this is a uh, like October. 29th, I believe, 1994, this guy pages me uh, late at night, and uh, I'm at a friend's house, and being that I want to use the, pay, the, the home phone, I go to the pay phone down the street in Huntington Park. Areas that I knew, I was familiar with, I grew up in that area. I mean, Florence is a pretty busy street, a lot of traffic, I'm lit up street, so I figured, you know, I'm, I'm not in a bad spot, I'm in a safe, safe area. Um... I go to the payphone, I make, I make my call, I call the youngster, and I say, okay, you're going to have the stuff? He says, yeah, I'm going to have it. Okay, tomorrow I'll see you in school, I'll buy it off you. As I'm doing that, I get a page from Donna, who at that time, she's my girlfriend, and she's also working in the unit. Um, <clears throat> so I get on the phone and start talking to her. And I'm talking to her, two male Hispanic, older male, male Hispanic gang members, maybe in the 30s, uh, uh, approach me. I see him come down the street, and I'm kind of uh, distracted by it. Because I don't, they don't look like they belong in that area. But I, I, I grip my my Beretta, I grab it from the from the handle, and I have it in my waist, my rear waistband. And I'm thinking these guys don't look like they're from this area. <clears throat> well, I, I'm I'm hoping they walk by me. But when they when they start getting closer to me, one of them walks by me. The other guy stops in front of me and he's playing with some money, some coins, acting like they're waiting for the payphone. So I'm trying to get rid of them. And me not thinking at that time, I, I use my right hand and direct him to another payphone down the street. And when I do that, the guy in front of me spins around and racks the action, puts his 9mm Beretta on my, uh, 9mm uh, Smith & Wesson on my stomach and jabs it into my stomach. And his partner closes me and corners me to the left side. So now they both got me cornered in and I have my back against the wall. And the guy's telling me to give me, give up my wallet, he's gonna kill me. Being that I know the area, being that I know how people act operative, I know if they find my badge and my, my ID and my wallet, my gun, they're probably still going to kill me. That's, that's my mind, my, my mindset. So I got, I said to myself, I got to distract these guys. I got to take the gun from them and I got to do something before, or kill them before they, before they find my gun and kill me or, or my badge and my wallet. So I'm trying to distract the guys. And Donna's on the phone. She's like, what's going on over there? I go, I mean, they're robbing me. And she's, she's like freaking out. She don't believe me. She's like, shut up. And the guy's talking some weird crazy nonsense too with the gun jabbing my stomach. He, keeps asking me for my wallet. So at one point, <clears throat> I have an opportunity. So I, I basically hit the guy to my left with my, with my back fist. I hit him in the nose, and I grab the guy's barrel of the gun and move and peel it, try to peel it away from him. He grips it, grips it with both hands, and we start fighting for the gun, and we fall to the ground. As we're on the ground, uh, I got the barrel pointed to his face, and he's got the, the trigger and the handle area. But his partner starts kicking me on my back and trying to kick my head. So now I'm pretty much on my back, blocking kicks with one hand and trying to pull the guy's gun away with my other hand. Uh, basically, I need another hand for that for that, for that that move right there, but I only have two. And uh, um, the guy pulls the gun away from me and now he points the gun towards my head and stands over me and he's pointing the gun to my, my head. I can see everything in slow motion. I have the, I can see the barrel, I can see the bullet inside the barrel. Everything's super slow motion. 
I'm able to grab the guy's kick and just kick me and, and grab it from like I block it with one hand and grab from the behind me and throw him over me. As I toss him over me, I use him as a shield for a split second. I'm able to get up. The minute I get up, uh, his partner starts firing at me and he hits my right leg, my thigh. I'm already drawing from my gun. I'm trying to move out of the way and he fires again, hits my other leg and he keeps firing. At this time, I'm already firing. I'm already hitting, chasing and hitting him. I hit him. I chase him. I hit him. I, I heard I shot, I shot his balls off. That's what I, that's what I was told. He got arrested in the hospital. But I'm able to run, run and shoot and, and hit, hit as I'm moving and, and breathing real slow, relaxing. I'm thinking just focus, focus, hit, hit. And uh, I only fired five rounds. I ended up hitting the guy. Uh, they turn the corner. The, the driver picks him up and takes him to the hospital. Uh, I run back to the payphone. I call. I get on the phone and, and Donna's not on the phone anymore. Her dad's on the phone, who's also Pomona PD. And he, he's, I'm like, hey, Dwayne, where's, uh, where's Donna? And, oh, she's running scared, screaming, thinking you're getting out yourself killed. And I go, no, I got shot in my legs. He's like, well, call 911. So I'll call 911. And uh, as soon as I finish calling 911, there's a blackout. That was another messy moment. There's a blackout. <laughs> and uh, so the fire, the police department and ambulance show up. They're across the street. I have my gun still in my hand. The, the gun's still smoking. The, the, the trigger's still pulled back. And I'm just like behind the tree waiting for these guys to come back because, you know, your, your, your adrenaline kicks and everything kicked in. I'm, I'm super alert, ready. I don't even feel no pain in my bullet wounds. I'm not thinking about all that. I'm just thinking about, let me get these guys if they come back. Let me, let me, let me make sure I finish them up. I'm fired up. I'm mad. And I, I, I was, I was cussing at the guys when I was shooting them. I was cussing. I was, I'm going to kill you, mother. I was talking nonsense because I was, I was fired up. I was mad and, and really, like, real pissed off, actually, they shot me. And I was like, these motherfuckers infested me because I'm real hard on myself because I, I'm known to be a perfectionist. And I'm, I'm also a technically black in martial arts. So these things to me, like, it shouldn't be happening to me. You're thinking in your head, man, I should have been able to take that gun and do this and that. But now you're you're now you're questioning everything you did, you know, right away. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and you're mad. So the ambulance shows up. They take my clothes off. They end up finding the two entrance and exit wounds on my legs and give me some uh like seconds later i'm telling come on let's go get these guys i know where they went i'm just talking uh, out of adrenaline i, I think it's everything because i'm just wired up and then uh the like seconds later i just feel this mean intense pain on my on my leg i'm like oh man this hurts i said uh give me something give me some pain pain medicine right here <laughs> i guess it must have shot me with morphine or something because that pain went away super fast Next thing I can shut up. <laughs> yeah, but they took me to the hospital. They treated me. I get phone calls from different police officers, my old, my partners, uh, my commanders. Uh, at that time, I think it was Willie Williams or something who, who might have been the chief at that time. Willie Williams for sure. Mm-hmm. He didn't go see me, but he sent one of his assistants to talk to me, call me, go visit me. And then uh, one of my buddies, uh, I get a phone call from one of my buddies, Art Lopez. I grew up around him. He retired as the chief of uh, Oxnard PD, I believe. First thing out of his mouth is, why didn't you kill him? You know, I'm like, oh, come on, dude. I shot the dude. <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> but it was just funny because, you know, you're young, you're a rookie, and the mentality of, of, a, of a gunslinger is already set in motion right there, you know? And uh, they gave me they gave me a medal, a police medal. And 
from there on, just things just change for me. Everything started changing for me. Was this considered an on-duty or off-duty shooting in terms of... They considered it on-duty because making a phone call to the, to the kid to buy the drugs. Right, so I would think so. On-duty. I read something that it was like they deemed it off-duty, and I wanted to know, how is that off-duty? Okay, so shot twice in the legs during a drug deal, <laughs> undercover juvenile narcotics. You're buying drugs out of the high schools. After that shooting, how did, at the time, I mean, look, with hindsight now, as, as your gift, at the time, though, how do you think you dealt with that shooting? I mean, did you uh, handle it well? Did, did you did you feel like it was a, a, a hazard of the job as of a, as being a gunslinger, as you put it? Uh, that gunfight changed me a lot in different ways, but it also caused me to question myself and be mad at myself because I could have responded to it different. I could have uh, got the the upper hand ahead of time. I could have probably smoked and taken both guys out without them getting shot. I, I when I quarterback the whole thing over and over because uh, I know better and, and things were going on in those during those days that I should have been more aware. But you know, this it, it happened. So this is the, the next question. Maybe is um, <laughs> this is not for for listeners. This is not a uh, a positive story or end result is is not a positive story. How, what? What do you remember being that those first warning signs of trouble? What was it? Uh, the thing about it is uh, when you're young on the job, or I think just overall, uh, and you, you're raised to suppress your feelings, suppress your, your thoughts, suppress uh, a lot of stuff, just suppress and, and not show emotions. You become like a robot. You become uh, hardened. And that shooting made me harder. It made me tougher and to the point where I didn't address my true feeling what I was going through because that started triggering stuff in my mind where I couldn't stop thinking about the shooting. I couldn't stop thinking about what I could have done or what I'm supposed to do now, how to how to prevent it, how to be more alert, how to be ready for the next shootout and this time when and not get shot and uh, when it's going to happen again. That's all I could think about. Mm-hmm. And it was not an easy, easy feeling because <clears throat> it's a constant reminder. You get the flashbacks. You get the certain dreams. You get the throughout the day. You're you're also already uh, everything. Everyone you look at, it, you think you might be a suspect. You might be a guy with a gun, and so you're always thinking. Let me let me be on my toes. You're thinking about how to prepare yourself next time. How to carry your gun different. And just so many things come to your head. You become you become uh, battle ready, but it's not. There's no peace, and you don't share that with anybody because even the patrol. I mean. I left that unit and I requested to go to Rampart Division because I know these were, these were busy divisions and what I was under the impression that you work the best divisions, you're going to get the best experience and you're going to be better qualified when you try to apply for Metro, for SWAT, for a specialized unit. They're going to, they're going to consider your package. They're going to see your whole package. They're going to say, this guy's for the way he's been. He's got experience. We want that, that guy on our side. So I requested to go to Rampart and Rampart's a super busy, uh, active, Drugs and gangs to the fullest. Like eight, seven, eight, seven miles square, miles, seven miles square radius. But it's nothing but different gangs from MS 13, 18th Street. The the highest, more active violent gangs are, are, are basically were born there. That's where they started. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, so, so well, you know, you said you you had to toughen up, and you were you grew up not showing, you know, signs of emotion and all that. Well, that stuff has to come out somehow, uh, either exactly. positively or negatively. So what, 
What started happening? Uh, I mean, was it? Uh... I started getting resentful towards the department. I started getting resentful to the to the, to the towards the brass when they would try to change policies and think about worry about liabilities instead of thinking about the officer safety issue. And I'm thinking these idiots don't know what they're talking about. We here we have a bunch of good officers risking their life every day to get a job done where there's nothing but violence and craziness. And they want us to worry about liability lawsuits. What about your life? What about your your your, your well being? And, and things started just things just started accumulating because uh in the process, uh when I was in the union undercover unit, no 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 one ever advised me about being able to visit a psychologist or someone that could actually talk to me about what I was going through. So I just shut it down. I assumed that was normal practice. You know, they sent me back to school in crutches to keep buying drugs. And and of course I was able to buy a bunch of drugs because I because I, I, I lied to the kids and made them think I was out there in the project buying drugs and some guys tried to rob me. So that 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 uh, was a good uh, pretext. It worked, but uh, to me. I was still like constantly being tormented by the shootout, and uh, I felt that the department doesn't consider the human human side of a, of a police officer. So I started getting bitter and resentful towards them. I said, "Forget these idiots!" You know, here I am with with, with my kids, and here I am putting my life on life for these idiots, and and I'm helping these people I don't even know. And yeah, I started going back and forth, justifying it and, and creating my own ideas of what I'm going to do, how I'm going to survive this job. Interesting. And then. Huh? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, a lot of us deal with criticism or, or, or frustration with command and decisions that, like you say, are made out of the interest of liability or uh, public perception and not officer safety. Um, but you really internalize that and really seems like went, let, deeper. went deep and let that yeah. fester into a real, real anger. Was there... Yeah. Um, as often happens after stuff like this, al- alcohol abuse or drug abuse. Really? I started drinking. I started drinking alcohol, but I, I, I was drinking. I was womanizing. I was. Uh, I was. Uh, violence was my drug too. I started working the gang unit. I started working this other undercover unit called the Field Enforcement Section (FES), and I got into. Uh, my partner got into another shootout there, and uh, I had a shotgun. I ended up. We ended up shooting him, and he ended up getting killed um, in '97, and. Uh, I started really enjoying that that image, the way people looked up to me, with the, the, my own coworkers, uh, uh, made me feel like you know I was that, that gunslinger, that image you portray, and, and really down deep inside, you're, you're being tormented. But uh, people don't understand the full truth because you're becoming a monster, really, because you don't have no remorse, you have no feelings for people, uh, slapping people around, the gang members, you know, pistol whipping and beating them down, and, and uh, basically bullying them back. You get the victims to tell you what the gang members just did to them. The victim uh, is scared to file charges, but the victim wants us to do something about it. And we're in the gang unit. So I'm thinking, well, we can stick here with this jackass here. We could do this to him and get rid of him. And don't worry about the victim. Don't get the victim involved. Don't get the informant involved so we don't get our informants killed. Because I've had one of my informants get shot one time, <laughs> eight times by, by gang members because he, he rolled on them and got, got me a bigger drug bust. But uh, he ended up getting shot like eight times. Um, because they ended up finding out it was him, even though I tried to protect them, they still ended up shooting him. But uh, the thing about it is, uh, you start thinking, okay, victims need help. We're supposed to do our job. How can we do our job? You start getting mad at the whole process of the whole system, but you don't understand that there's a bigger picture. You miss the bigger picture. Like me, I, you know, as, as a Christian man, I see the bigger picture. I didn't see it before. I was I was shut down. And I was uh, 
I guess you could say blinded by my anger and stuff. So it was the anger that it was an anger originally that started with your command, but then a frustration on the street of, you know, these guys never pay for their crimes and, and the victims are being uh, sometimes killed just for yeah. talking to the cops and reporting it. And that I, I get a legitimate frustration that that, <clears throat> that challenge of going out every day and feeling like you're, uh, you're pushing that rock uphill every day just for it to right. roll back down. What what was the first steps? You say you know assaulting the gang members, and, and so I, and you you admit this uh, openly that you know physically right. assaulting. I mean you you right. would you would street justice these guys. Um, right. Was this something that was out of uh, the norm at Rampart, or was it something that was there when you got there, or was it something that? Um, you just got swept up in that seemed like everybody was beginning to participate in. What, what, what was it? That type of stuff is, I guess you could say, a common practice in a sense, but at the same time, um, things escalate. I mean, situations escalate to where, where it drives a person to assume that that's the way to deal with these uh, hardcore gang members. Mm -hmm. And we think that's the mean, that's the way to to handle it. Um, I mean, it's not, but that's what we assumed back then, you know, to, to get some to order in the end of the streets and put some little fear in these guys and let them know that we're running the streets, not them, because uh, uh, we have to still make sure they're still afraid of us. And was this something that you, that, you know, I know you guys typically run two-man cars, but if right. you're in the gang unit, was the whole unit uh, sharing this ethos or was it coming down from a sergeant or... Uh, or where, you know, where did it come from, or did did you lead the charge? Uh, I guess you could say that when you start picking up ideas here and there from different individuals, and and uh, of course, um, this is something that you're gonna you're gonna be exposed to. You're gonna be exposed to something that you are not prepared for from in an academy. You're not aware that you're gonna see a lot of stuff that that's gonna open your eyes. At the same time, you have to look at the, to me, the big picture is officer safety, the, the, the wrist, the, the heart, the hard work officers have. It's just not an easy job. It's a hardcore job. And, and I think um, things can build up on a, on a person, no matter who you are. You can start off as a nice, caring individual who just loves their job, loves, loves people. Um, but I think because some of us don't have outlets, don't have a strong foundation in something, Somewhere we could uh, release our frustrations, our anger. We ended up, we ended up either putting a bandage over over stuff, by, or by coping with alcohol, coping with different means, and and, and we start being consumed by certain things. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think? Um, maybe again, with the gift of hindsight, was there a lack of leadership that was that was not showing the the correct way to, to to deal with this or was it that your leadership was showing you that this is the way to deal with it? I guess you could say some of our leaderships uh, were pretty pretty intense in the areas of dealing with these individuals who we assume were the troublemakers of, of our community mm -hmm. and it was the way that we dealt with them. That's what we were uh, I guess observing from others, mm -hmm. and it was a normal practice. And I'll I'll add just as an outsider with some knowledge of of 
what was happening in LA at the time and that you guys were successful in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. That you, you put the, you put them under the pressure of that, that kind of um, contact and right. uh, the crash team you know, in LA and those sorts of, uh, I mean, the crime went down right in right. the, right. in the late nineties crime in LA plummeted gang crime, especially right. uh, in large part because of what, you know, on the surface of the front page of the paper were just aggressive, proactive police enforcement. But right. maybe behind the scenes, this is this was the actual this was the tactics behind the strategy. Uh, but you were getting positive reinforcement from that in the fact in the fact that or in the sense that it was working. The community actually was was happy. They enjoyed it. I mean, I know it's kind of messed up, but I'm, I'm going to share a story because <clears throat> I know it's uh, that was mean. I'm, I'm admitting to my own wrongdoing, but. Uh, there was a complaint from some from some uh, resident <clears throat> of some narcotic activity right in front of the house. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, we responded, me and my partner, and uh, we, we gave him a break. We know some of the drugs, and I said, look, he's got a break. Get out of here. We're getting complaints. Don't come back to his little neighborhood, or we're going to come back and arrest you guys. Well, they ended up uh, walking away. My partner and I observed, and, and we hid and waited for them to come back. And we know they're going to play, play their role. They're going to be slick. They're going to come back. <clears throat> and granted, there's always other ways to deal with these guys. And, and just find a door, dope, and we can get rid of them too. But that way, they can even find open their pocket by by our means, you know. So <clears throat> I said, uh, this, this is wait for these guys. They're going to come back. So they come back, and they think they're slick. So we're going to creep up on them. And I just start being, being on them. Just like being, beating them down and kicking their butts. And that... Uh, I kick me hard in the head, he knocks out, he faints. I'm, I'm thinking, oh no, I think I might have hurt, I might have killed this dude. So, anyway, the guy gets up, seconds later, run to take off. The situation was resolved. <clears throat> um, the tenants called me back and say, you know what, keep doing what you're doing, it's working, they're not coming back. So, to me, I was like, okay, it's good. good, good stuff. So, you get, yeah, you're getting reinforcement that this was. <laughs> Right. This was correct. So it sounds like this was a slippery slope that that eventually uh, came to a crash again. You were off work on. You were recovering from a shoulder surgery from a from an on duty injury. Yeah, and you know, from the shoulder. Lots of us, lots of us pick up overtime, pick up second jobs, pick up security <laughs> details to pay some extra bills. You know, help help fund our activity. You went a different way, and and. You decided on a second job. What What did you start doing while you were off on that leave? Well, what happened was uh, I started getting real resentful to the point because uh, I see one of my, my one of my buddies got killed, and I'm not to be that. One of your was, one of your friends in the line of duty, which <coughs> in the line of duty, in the line of duty, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was bothered by it because I thought to myself, this poor guy was young, he had a wife and kids, and I thought to myself, I wonder how far the department going to support his family now, and uh, how far they're going to really help his family. And I started noticing certain things. So, you know, I was back then. I was real resentful, and I'd get mad. I was an angry individual. Back then, I had a lot of uh, stored up for anger and different bitterness. So I said, you know what? This is, to me, I love this job, but at the same time, they're gonna tie my hands down, not let me do my job right. I said, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this job anymore. And then uh, <clears throat> I went and got the got involved in the training. I became an instructor for the police department's tactics and self defense because. I have an intense background in martial arts too. I'm an MMA coach, so I, I'm able to 
or mixed with stuff to teach the departments of tactics and self-defense. So <clears throat> I was in this unit called the Rusty Control School unit. And while I'm doing that, I'm getting ready for Metro. But I get injured on my shoulders. But I'm training the guys. I get injured. And uh, <clears throat> the surgery that they give me didn't, didn't come out right. They ended up messing my shoulder up more. At this point, now I'm, now I'm actually drinking. I started actually smoking weed. And that's, to me, that became like my medicine to relax me and calm me down because my mind would be spinning. It's like, like constantly thinking crazy stuff. And uh, so one day, after this situation with Navidad and, and after the Rampart scandal broke loose, I just started getting really like thinking to myself, you know what? This uh, job is not fun anymore. <laughs> so I thinking in my head because I, I was an adrenaline junkie back then. So then I started thinking to myself, you know, these dope dealers, they make so much money. They get all this money. Look what they're up to us. You know, I'm going to start taking that. I'm going to start taking the cash. I'm going to start taking the dope and the money. <clears throat> let pay for their debt. Let them pay for my bills. And I said that the, 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 the cartel beat them down or shoot them for not paying their debt because they're going to get jacked by me. <clears throat> this all started in my head. You know, I just started thinking like that. And, and, and actually, I ended, up, I ended up meeting this one person that I knew from, from well back who was actually involved in the, in the uh, movements of narcotics with the cartels. And I said, hey, uh, check it out, dude. I'm in the best spot. I'm upset. I'm, I don't I really don't do my job no more. Uh, I don't know, but and this all, of course, you know, all this builds up. It accumulates from so many events and so many situations, and, and I never really had an outlet. I never coping mechanism. So I said to myself, I'm gonna start. A, I'm gonna start doing that. And I got a hold of this guy, and I said, Hey, uh, well, me with the debt. I was gonna collect the debt for you. Just a, a new dope debt, but it's gotta be a lot of money. It's gotta be in the millions. I'm not going to do that. It's got to be worth the risk. I said, if I'm going to get busted, let it be worth the risk. So, of course, uh, he ended up hooking me up with this one job, and I ended up taking his house down. I ended up inviting a couple of my partners, and he ended up getting his house, and he got about almost $700,000 cash and like 15 kilos of coke. And to me, it, and you know, back then it was an adrenaline junkie rush, and, and I got hooked. It, it became like, a, wow, easy money. Dummies, you know. Well, I just, I just didn't I stopped caring at that point. And so, that's where that's where it started. So, explain to to people, myself included, that leap from I, you know, I get negative thoughts or, you know, thinking negative things, but then moving into action, but not just moving into action, but uh, to to side to for people who weren't clear on what you just uh described you uh were ripping off drug dealers right and you you set up to do essentially a home invasion robbery on behalf of a of a drug dealer right to and confiscated the the drug the other drug dealers cocaine and 115 keys of coke and a hundred thousand dollars cash 700 yeah about 700 700 so in uh trying to wrap my head around that (laughs) Um, you said in your description of the conversation with this guy that it better be worth it if you're Mm -hmm. you know if you're going to get pinched what what was the value to you what what, was there a dollar number that was worth it to you to to roll the dice with this and and, and risk it i just didn't think i was gonna get busted i just thought you know i'm gonna do one or two of these i'm gonna get i'm I'm gonna play it safe and we're gonna find out about this um, when just hit hit it one or two hard heavy ones, and I'm done. And I'm just gonna find out about it. I thought I, I knew the system. I thought I knew the game. I thought I was pretty, pretty solid in, in, in covering my track. 
<laughs> but you know, that's not this big lie. <laughs> so you thought one or two of these, you'd cover it up, you'd be done, you'd you'd be set, and you'd go back to just being a cop. No, I was gonna. I was already dealing with the the bullet wounds in my leg, my shoulder surgery. So I was gonna pinch up and just open up my own. I had my my martial arts gym too. I was gonna start running oh, my okay. gym. Just let it all go. So you're gonna retire from law enforcement on the, I was on the prom, long, proceeds yeah. and all that. So yeah. one of the um. I mentioned a name, and that name is probably very sensitive to you, but uh, William Ferguson. He's uh, somebody you testified against in court, and he was one of your partners during this time, and his brother right. was Long Beach PD. Right. You mentioned that you invited some of your other partners to join you in this, and he was one right. of them. Yes. What was described to me, if you remember, that conversation between the two of you where you invited him in to do this? Because, I mean... There must have been some comfort comfort level uh, between you to to float this idea because you can't just, I mean, you don't know if this guy is going to turn you in or if he's gonna right. if he's on the hook for something else or what what was that conversation like? Were you like, hey, you want to go uh, wear police uniforms and steal police cars from the LAPD Academy to make it look like a legitimate police raid and go rip off drug dealers? Was it that casual or what? What was the how uh, was that vetting process? Bill and I. Had some, some history because we worked together as partners in Ramport, and uh, we both had dirt on each other. We had dealt with gang members our way, so I knew he was in our mind the way we categorize our individual solid, square away individual who I know could be trusted to uh, to stay quiet and, and I guess probably um, be be down for this. Um, he was having problems with the department; they had him under. A complaint for in South Central's working patrol, and some gang members from South Central, some black gang members, ended up complaining to that he he took the house down to an informant, a house with drugs and weapons, and, and that there was a legitimate takedown, but they were accusing him of, of fabricating part of the report that it wasn't a search, it wasn't the way he did, that he didn't observe it, and the informant gave him info, he just moved in and took the house down. So they were looking at him at that, and then he had to work with this guy in Rampart who was a dude that fired from Rampart for beating up a 18th Street gang member. So because of that, he was, and he and his wife was, was him and wife were separated, so I know he was struggling financially, she was going to divorce him. So I thought to myself, this, this, this guy here needs, needs, uh, needs a little help. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? Let me hit him up. I'm sure if he doesn't want to, he'll just keep it to himself and pretend he never had this conversation with me. So I did, I hit him up, I did so many look at him. I know I'm, I'm going through something, I'm not even, I'm not in a mood, I'm, I'm not in a good mood anymore, I'm not, I'm not happy, I'm miserable, I'm starting to hate the promise of the job, and I mean, just, they were negative. And I said, uh, but I got this little deal here, and this guy wants to hook it up with the, with the job, to go collect a, de collect a debt on some dealers that owe some money. I said, if you're game, I mean, if you're down, it's between you and I, just keep it to ourselves and we just make, take this hit and see what happens. And he agreed. He agreed to go for it. So you eventually, um, you eventually testified to either complete, completed or attempted about 40 robberies of this right. and over a million dollars in cash and drugs over these two years. And for people listening, like I, I, I touched on it a minute ago, your your method was you would pose as the police on duty, as some legitimate. Right. You, you were there for legitimate business. You would fake a search warrant, 
and you'd pull out you would you would utilize cars that you such a stole from the police academy so you had marked police cars and you would show up kick in the door cuff everybody up steal the dope and then leave right all all under the auspice of this is an official police action and that was how you guys operated for 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 two years right at least right i mean you guys that's you're busy 40 robberies (laughs) um how did you manage to fly under the radar so long I mean, at, at first I thought I was actually covering my bases, and I thought that the people around me were going to be <clears throat> trustworthy, and they were going to keep everything to themselves. But <clears throat> people started uh, oh, <clears throat> showing off, <clears throat> exposing themselves. <clears throat> <clears throat> they started uh, getting involved with the wrong crowd, and that was actually linking them to to uh, informants, and they didn't even know they were working with uh, informants. They were one of my cousins and his friend were removing drugs and they started getting involved with these uh, guys that had supposedly their time in prison and they were introducing them to some Colombians supposedly to go buy some cocaine. I was, I had nothing to do with that there. I wasn't supposed to be there, but they invited me to make the connection so I could train these people uh, and maybe collect the debt. So <clears throat> me, you know, thinking, well, you know what, I'm going to do these guys a favor. When we went down to, to San Diego, they were going to buy 10 kilos of cocaine. Uh, it was a sting operation against uh, my cousin and his friend, and I fell into their, their operation. I got hit right there in San Diego 2001. Yeah, so that's how you eventually got caught, right? Is You right. you got caught as a group of four in San Diego <clears throat> trying to buy 10 keys of coke off of the DEA. Right, yeah. And that's when obviously everything came out and kind of and kind of fell apart. So you're working in Rampart, and Rampart is a famous word in the Los Angeles area these days because of the scandals that came out of there, and um, it kind of blew out or blew out blew up um, because of officer former officer now Rafael Perez, and he's the one who dimed you out to their IA before you got busted, right? Yeah, he did. He said stuff about me. So. I mean, he was a dirty cop too, though. Was and he just uh, <clears throat> did you know each other? We're running crews like this, or or what was? We worked the gang unit together, so we knew each other. We we assisted each other on certain radio calls when it had to do with the gang unit, the uh-huh. gang uh, activity. But we weren't buddy buddies. We we talked. We, we probably had drinks here and there once in a while, but we weren't like super tight. But uh, yeah, he was in the same unit with me in the Rampart crash. Right? And did you know that he was he was doing his own thing on the side as well? We had no idea he was doing that other stuff. We, we knew that he was involved in the, against one of the gangs in L.A. as a gang cop and doing his dirt there, which, you know, the way the gang unit was operating back then. So whatever he was doing back then, we understood, we knew that there was a code of silence and we would be disrespecting each other just left everybody alone and did their own thing. But we didn't have, we didn't have, we had no idea he was doing the other stuff that he got busted for. So, when uh, you, you get busted by the DEA trying to buy ten keys, that's not a that's not a small offense by any means. Um, when did it sink in that you were in trouble? Like, did I mean, you, I, I, was oh, it before right. the arrest and 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 like you just couldn't stop? I mean, you know, forty robberies and a million dollars in cash and drugs—that's enough to go start a business. What did did you just get addicted to the? the rush of it all and um, yeah 
I think it was a rush. I got addicted to adrenaline. It was like I, I you know, and I'm, I'm going to bring up that word, post-traumatic stress disorder kicks in, and you don't even know what it is because mm-hmm. nobody talked about it in the 90s. And it's like I couldn't sit still and relax. I needed to get this fix. I needed to, to feed this monster inside me, and, and that's how I was feeding it. It was like I needed to get that adrenaline rush. I needed to get involved with something. I needed to go beat somebody down. I needed it. I just it was the weirdest uh, drug addiction to me. That was like that was my drug addiction, and I, I don't know why I couldn't just sit still and relax and hang out with my family. I, I, there was there was a really uh, for me it was uh, it boggled me. And the only way I would relax was when I was home at night and I was drinking some, some vodka with some cranberry juice and maybe roll up the joint and smoke it so I could relax and, and, and calm my, my brain down because it was like spinning, going, going uh, full speed ahead. Were you nowadays, I mean, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. I want to I wanna kind of stick chronologically because there's so much here. So you're arrested. Uh, you're, you don't even go to trial, right? You pled guilty. To... Well, I was I was in, I was actually at first I was thinking about it, but then when I started finding out with the feds, how oh, they play, I said, you know, what good to me. Well, then, I, then I found out that a lot of my co-defendants told on me, started telling on me. <clears throat> so to me, I said, why? Well, I, I I was being hard-headed. I was kept telling my children, "Where's the victim then?" I said, "Bring me the victim. Said, There's no victims here. Let them tell me about the victims they victimized because I don't see these guys as victims." Um, it took time for me to humble myself and realize that I was wrong and I took a pledge and I was supposed to do the right thing and here I am breaking it on myself and it took me actually giving my life to the Lord and reading, starting to read the Bible and then starting to see my own issues, my own faults and what brought me to prison and how all this stuff started building up, building up because I never was honest with myself or honest with anybody about what I was really going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to me, um, it took about two years when I finally fully came clean on myself because I had basically everybody was, had turned on me. And I'm, I'm isolated. I'm a single cell in the hole for five years. 2015, almost 2008, I'm in a single cell in the, in the hole by myself. And I'm noticing that everybody just abandoned ship. They abandoned me and everybody's t- telling me. So I had no idea at that time that Bill and his brother were going to trial. But when I started finding out, I said, you know what? I'm going to do the right thing for me because I have to do the right thing. I have to own up to what I did. I'm, I'm, I gotta be a man about this and I gotta basically come clean on myself. And that's what I did. I, I came clean on myself and I pled guilty. I took a deal and, uh, and they gave me 18 years. I ended up doing 16 out of 18. Which is, I mean, for, I'm, I know a lot of cops are listening to this and they're gonna think you got off easy. And, and realistically, if you, had pled, if you had pled not guilty, you were looking at a life sentence, right? I mean, that's potentially right. what could have happened. I could have got 100 years. I could have, yeah, life sentence, yeah. And so I, I have to think that there's a lot of people who think, well, 16 years, that's not that's not much for, for making my job that much harder and convincing <laughs> people that we are on the right side. But 16 years is 16 years, you know, in, in, in federal prison, in the hole. It's a long time. I did a lot of time in isolation. I did a lot of time in the yards, too. But to be a cop and then go to prison, it, it ain't a fun ride. You're going to do your time, you're going to man up. And, and like people say, you got to tie your nuts up and, and be a man about it, face it, face the music. Because I, I know myself, I know I, I, I was, and I know what I could do with my potential. I know that I'm, I'm a different individual without my relationship with God as a Christian. So in prison, I was I was prepared 
to deal with whatever I had. Whatever was coming my way, because I knew it was an ex-cop, I knew I was going to find out, and I wasn't going to sit there and BS anybody and tell them, oh, you know, I'm here for tax evasion. I'm, here for, I'm not going to be straight up with these guys in prison because uh, I'm not going to be, be hiding and running. And, 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 you know, because if they, to me, any weakness you show, any form of weakness in prison, they're going to take advantage of that. And especially if you're an ex-cop, they're going to they're gonna try to beat you down. Or, you ain't trying to get beat up for rape in prison, that's for sure. And, uh, or stabbed. So in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be straight up with the shot callers. So when I went to prison, uh, I, I, I would meet the shot callers in the yard and I would, I would tell the Mexican shot callers, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm here for this. I'm from Mexico, but I'm, I'm not running no, polit- no prison politics. Uh, I'm, I'm an ex-cop and this is what I went to prison for, this is what I did. I'm a Christian, I'm, you know, my own business. I'm trying, I'm trying to stay out of trouble and I'm trying to change my ways. I'm trying to get involved with my I would do my time. <clears throat> and they respect that because I wasn't sitting there lying to them and saying, oh, I'm here for this, for that. Because they're, they're going to find out their cell phone in prison. They're going to Google your name. They're going to find out what you're in there for. To me, that's that's a, that's a coward move in a sense. But at the same time, they're going to just, they're going to look at that as a form of, of fear, disrespect, cowardice. And then they're going to try to bully you, punk you, and then have to have do something. <laughs> you got to be ready. <laughs> yeah. So, do you do you think sixteen years was fair, or do you, or or and do you think that that was the right time and the sufficient amount of time, and that you used that time to? Oops, sorry. Oh, my bad. Sorry about that. Let me turn this off. So, um, was sixteen years enough time? I I, mean, I can't imagine anyone's going to answer that with no. I needed more, but do you feel like your penance has been paid? to your brothers in blue like law enforcement as a profession to your to the public to your family if that was an issue um and do you and what are you doing now to really put this behind you and and, and not only just put not put it behind you but that's the wrong word um use it to inform the rest of your life but also to give back To, to me um well, being in there gave me a lot of time to think and reflect and go back to why I signed up for this job, why I took that oath, why I put my life on the line to, to do a job that um, a lot of people uh, don't like. Some the ones that love it are doing it when they're putting their life out there, they're putting that, they're risking it. Uh, I thought a lot in prison about what I'm going to do to redeem myself, but also to give back and help. Uh, the men and women uh, in the uniform that are actually facing tough times and are dealing with situations. Um, I did a lot of researching for PTSD. I studied a lot of Christian counseling courses, <clears throat> but I got a lot of help for myself while I was in there because we all know I need more help than anybody. I, uh, <clears throat> oh, sorry. I contracted out a professional Christian psychologist and they started counseling me and dealing with my PTSD. I spent hours and hours with them in, in, in sessions. And then I started giving back while I was in prison. <clears throat> I started helping out people that I met in prison that were actually military guys, former officers too, that got in trouble from the ranks of chiefs to lieutenants, captains, sergeants. I met a bunch of them in there and, and military guys. I started doing classes for them in prison so that I could give back and, and start playing that seat. And me, myself, I don't believe in running or hiding from, from my mistake. I believe that uh, if God put me on this earth for something and yet at the time, there's going to be different views and different opinions and different people who, who could be mad and hateful and say, you know, that guy should have been there forever. He, he did this, that, that. And 
I'm going to put it in God's hand. I, I put my life in God's hand. And I did. I put my trust in God. And I said, whatever God thinks I need to, I need to do so I can get my life, my act right, get my life right, and, and come out of here and do something positive. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to face it. Uh, 16 years is a lot of time. It is. Um, but I met guys that are in there for life. There's guys that are in there for 30 years. And I, I want to praise God because I only got that time. You know, because they could have given me a lot more time and they wanted to. And to me, you know, I, I put my faith in the Lord and I just, I just, I humble myself. I say, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to be that, that hardcore dude anymore. I don't want to be that guy. That guy's the one that gets me in trouble. That guy's the one that don't give a rat's ass and just does things and, and ain't afraid of the consequences, ain't afraid about what's going to happen. And that's not the guy I am anymore. So for for people listening who maybe are specifically in positions of supervisory roles um, and also people who just want to be aware of themselves, there seems to be a a chain of events, maybe not events, but 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 red flags for people that that maybe someone needs some extra attention in a positive way, some positive uh, intervention. But it seems like financial stress. Uh, has come up both that was an issue for you it was an issue for uh, your partner um, Bill Ferguson it was uh, a steady a steady theme of, of, of financial stress marital stress seemed to be come up a lot and then on duty incidents uh, life-threatening events you know your life right. I mean you are lucky to have survived that robbery at for the payphone sure. yeah. and um, you know, back, like you I agree back in the nineties, uh, PTSD was not something addressed. Um, especially in a unit like crash or gangs where you were not, it, you know, I, I can see how you were never encouraged to open up and speak up about those things. You know, we, there's a, I think we've gotten a lot better, uh, in those 20 years. Um, the policing in general is much better at understanding that these things are real and they affect us and that not addressing it devolves into these exact things. Um, but what is, what are some of the things you would like, if you could sit with a group of, of sergeants or lieutenants, you know, frontline supervisors, what would be your advice to them on how to, how to take care of their people? I think the most important is understand that we're human. We're not robots. We do have emotion. We have to learn. There's gotta be a, a system within is that we have to have more courage to step up and, and tell our supervisors, hey, look, I'm struggling. I'm either having marriage problems, I'm having this problem. I want to address it because I want to overcome it. And and it's got to be tools. It's got to be education on that kind of stuff so people can understand that there's a way out of it so they don't keep taking steps deeper into into that, that side that's going to move into making the worst decision in their life that they're going to regret. Um, I know we have a high rate of suicide in the department. We have a high rate of alcoholism, of pill popping, of divorce. You, you name it, it's there. It is unfortunate. You're the ones, we're the ones that's supposed to be the front line and putting a life out there for us to help us. But uh, who's helping the, the men and women in, in blue uniforms? Uh, there's not enough of that. And even in the military, same thing. To me, um, I believe that when, when I, if I was able to talk to any leader, or even the, 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 from the rookies in the academy to the to the boots to the <clears throat> to the, <clears throat> the guys that are just <clears throat> still going to probation. Excuse me. <clears throat> they're still going to probation period. <clears throat> you want to let them know what kind of signs to look for, but also <clears throat> let them know that 
they have to have more support from their own co-workers or peers because a lot of the peers that are going to bad mouth you. You tell another person, hey, listen, I'm having some issues with my wife and I'm going through right now. And some of them, because everybody wants to be that tough guy. Everybody wants to be that hardcore, hardest individual sometimes. I think that makes you a real hardcore man. And, and that's a big lie because that doesn't make you a human being. And a lot of times, um, these guys will make fun of their own co-workers because they're having to show, oh, he's a, what a wimp, what a, what a sissy, what a, what a coward, fag, you know. And that's not the way, the way you're going to treat your own brother, your own partner, because that same guy's hurting and that means, uh, you should be able to reach out to him. But we ain't brought up that way. We ain't taught that way. We're taught we gotta be killers. We gotta be this. We gotta be that. You gotta have a balance in your life. A lot of officers don't have that balance. They're stuck in that frame of mind because there's no no outlet for them. They have no idea there's there's help. They have no idea that they could talk to somebody. And and they don't trust. We don't trust because it's always us against them or them against us. If we're in the field, we're we're out there, you know, putting the bad guy away. So we think everybody's our enemy sometimes. Nobody likes us, so we, so we shut down. And that's bad. Um, I believe that our supervisors should have better training in, in understanding the, 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 the police officers, understanding and listening to them. And then, you know, don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to be real with yourself, first of all, because you're going to hurt your marriage, you're going to hurt your kids, you're going to hurt your career. A lot of things going to happen because you, you chose to stay quiet, you chose to sh shut down and, and suppress. And it's bad. Look what I had to go through. And that's why me now, I want to be able to help out. I want to be able to give back. Well, coming on here and, and sharing your story, I think, is, is a great step. Uh, you're still on parole. You've got a little bit left. Uh, what's what's your grand plan from here forward? Uh, and I'm, you know, like, again, trusting the Lord as a Christian. I'm, I'm going to leave it in God's hands to open doors so I just have a. Uh, Speaking engagement, I want to be able to talk, educate uh, officers, share my story, share the signs, share the uh, could have, would have. Like in, in reality, what what I could have done ahead of time to prevent me from getting deeper into this frustration, this anger, uh, the forgiveness steps. I should have taken forgiveness process. Nobody teaches forgiveness either. And to me, I grew up not knowing forgiveness from from. My childhood to an adult, I was never taught about forgiving people, what it is to forgive, what it is to let go. Now hold on to the resentment, now hold on to the bitterness, the hatred when people do something to you. Because it accumulates and it tears you up, it eats you up, makes you a, a, an angry individual, makes you a, a basically insensitive, but it also makes you a monster at the same time because you lose your sensitivity to other people and you're always, you're always angry about everything. You know, and it's not good for you, it's not healthy. Yeah, I, I think coming on and here is a great start. I, I like the idea of teaching forgiveness. Um, Ralph, uh, Ruben, thank you for your time um, and sharing your story. It's like I said at the beginning, it was hard to wrap my head around it. Uh, I knew about Rampart. I knew about Rafael Perez and, and his involvement. I knew the story of you. I just didn't know your name. And it took a lot of guts to uh, send that email to me and be willing to speak about it openly and honestly and critically. Um, so I appreciate your time and uh, the insights you gave uh, in here. And um, I'm glad that you've found some peace in that you have some understanding of why this, uh, this, this, these events took hold of your life. So I hope that uh, 
you know, moving forward for you, you're able to use that and grow. And uh, I think that if you stick with this goal of openly educating police officers on the dangers of that slippery slope, then uh, you're going to do a, a great service for the rest of us. I appreciate your time too, and an opportunity for me to be able to share what I have because I mean, this is what I'm waiting for the moment for me to share it. And, and uh, like you said, uh, I do want to give back and help help others so they don't get stuck in a situation like mine. It's, it ain't nothing fun. It's such being prison, uh, and, and as a cop, especially <laughs> ex cop, I guess. Um, that's the worst feeling. You have to wake up every morning wondering uh, when someone's going to try to stab you or when you have to defend yourself. It ain't a fun feeling, but it, you know, it's, it's that life. You have to be ready. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so Ruben Palomares, uh, interesting story, uh, still conflicted, <laughs> uh, but uh, but a guy who I, I do legitimately think is is trying to to make things right, and uh, who am I to judge? Uh, I think uh, his story is, is is a good warning sign, and there's lots of good red flags, and it's just a good story because it's true, all of it's true, and. Um, and we didn't even get into the the depths of the intricacies, and I didn't know how comfortable he'd be talking about stuff that he may or may not have testified to because I didn't read all the transcripts. Um, so my point was to stay on the story of of that slippery slope and corruption and how it can happen, um, not to get into the nuance of what he was doing. But I highly suggest if you're interested in this stuff, the two just. All you got to do is Google his name and LAPD and the stories and the LA Times articles will come up and I'll post a couple in the show links too. So you can go to the squadroom.net slash episode 5050 to to look at all the notes from the show and some of those links uh, and, and you'll see more there. Uh, if you want to support the show, great way to do that is audible.com uh, is of course audiobooks. And if you're sick of my voice uh, and sick of, uh, the bad <laughs> Skype connection from the show. Apologies again. Uh, and you want to uh, expand your mind a little bit? Audible books, audiobooks are a great way to do that. Audible, of course, being connected with Amazon is, I think, the biggest supplier of audiobooks out there in the world. And if you go to audibletrial.com forward slash the squad room, you can get a free 30 day trial and a free audiobook of your choice just for trying the program out. No commitment to buy, nothing like that. And you can uh, explore. Uh, all these different uh, great books out there. I have so many I'm reading right now, hard books. I'm having a hard time thinking of one to recommend. Um, but I will go back to the one that I think uh, Greg Amundsen suggested in the last episode, Man's Search for Meaning, which frankly, I don't even know if it's an audiobook, but I'm sure it's out there. But that book um, will change lives. So the Man's Search for Meaning is my recommendation for this week. Garrett at the squadroom.net is my email. The squadroom at the squadroom is my Instagram and Twitter. Hit us up there. Uh, you can sign up for a mailing list at our website, the squadroom.net, or you can even text the squadroom, all one word, to 44222 and get signed up for a mailing list there, just right from your phone. Until next episode, uh, please take care of each other. Please stay safe and please look out for each other. Look out for these warning signs uh, in your partners, though the drinking, the marital problems, the financial problems, the on-duty incidents that aren't being dealt with. 
pull people to the side, check on them, see how they're doing, uh, let them know that they've got someone to listen to because this job can be isolating and this machismo that we all uh, seem to feel we need to um, present can get dangerous if you let it. So until the next time, take care of each other and stay safe.